Let's turn to God's holy word, 1 Timothy 1. Paul is commanding Timothy to stay in Ephesus to wage war against false teachers so that the true gospel may take its course there in that congregation and city. Page 1177, 1 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, And peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexual, homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Our text this morning is verses 5 through 11. So if you just keep your Bibles open there as we work through these verses 5 through 11 of 1 Timothy 1. Brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, Paul told Timothy, you must remain in Ephesus to wage the good warfare. 
against the false teachers and to do so for the sake of the gospel. So the gospel wins and false teaching dies. And here Paul gives to the gospel a very unusual name in verse 11 that you don't find anywhere else in the Bible. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Sound doctrine. Sound teaching. The gospel is glorious. It's beautiful. That's really the message of Ephesians. False teaching is not only wrong, it's destructive. It's ugly. There's no glory in it. Verse 19, it makes shipwreck of your faith. You want that? Chapter four, it's demonic. Chapter five, it breeds quarrels over nothing. It produces the ugly fruit of envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, irreverent babble says the book. It produces myths and ungodliness and silly discussions. It's unsound in every way. Whereas the true doctrine is beautiful. It's glorious. It saves lives. It builds your life. It heals and restores. Listening to a man speak this past week who was Deeply stuck in a trap of pornography in his early 20s. And through the gospel, the Lord rescued him. Forgave all his sins. Set his feet high upon a rock. And he says, now I'm healed of it. I have no feeling for that anymore. The gospel's good. And necessary And when he uses the word sound doctrine in verse 10, that word sound you'll see in the note in the margin means healthy. It's good for you. It's healthy. It builds, it feeds, it nourishes. It keeps your faith going till you reach the finish line. It produces godliness, says Timothy and Titus. It's healthy. So we're called to guard the glorious gospel of God because it's good. By teaching it first in love. Secondly, by teaching the law properly. And thirdly, by teaching the gospel properly. These are the three things we want to see here. By teaching it in love. By teaching the law properly. That's part of the sound doctrine. And by teaching the gospel properly. So first, by teaching it in love. We ended there last week. Timothy must stay in Ephesus to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. False teaching has infiltrated the church at Ephesus. It's come into the body of the elders there. And Timothy must wage war not just against the false teaching, but against the false teachers, certain persons. It's not easy. Certain persons who've devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations. 
which is not according to the stewardship of faith, says verse 4. You brothers and sisters, especially leaders in the church, God has made us stewards of the faith, of the sound doctrine. And a steward is the one whom Christ has given all the resources needed to care for a household. And leaders, we've been given the gospel. And as stewards of the household of God, we've got to share that sound doctrine, that healthy doctrine with God's people and fight against, protect them from all that is unhealthy. That's our calling as stewards. Protect people from false doctrine that makes shipwreck of people's faith. And there's a lot of it. That's Timothy's calling together with the other church leaders at Ephesus. But remember the aim, verse 5. Timothy, remember your aim. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God is a gospel of love, the love of the Father who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. The love of the Son who offered himself on the cross carrying our guilt and shame of our sin and making it his very own and be violently destroyed under God's wrath, punished with everlasting hell and then rising again in power and the love of the spirit to bring that home to your hearts and let that love of God Fill the church, even as it fights false teachers. We saw that in the book of Ephesus or in the book of Revelation last week, that after 20 or 30 years, the Ephesians weren't doing so well with this call that the aim is love. They were good at sniffing out false doctrine and weeding out false teachers, but they had lost their first love. Love for God, love for the gospel, love for the church, love for false teachers, love for the lost. But the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and in sincere faith. That's where love comes from. A gospel-filled heart that's devoted to God. A gospel-saturated conscience that is cleansed from evil works. That's daily washing in the blood of Christ. And putting off sin and walking with God. The gospel giving us a sincere faith without hypocrisy, not a pretend faith, but a real faith that's truly devoted to the sound teaching. And when that fills you, what else can motivate you than the aim of knowing that I myself am a wretched sinner who was saved by God's grace? And Paul goes on to talk about his own story in verses 12 and following. You know, the aim is love. And I want to just tell you how I was so loved by God when I was a blasphemer and an opponent of the gospel, an insolent, a rude 
hater of God. God's mercy reached into, into my life through Christ and rescued me. And this is a faithful saying and deserves all acceptance that I, Christ Jesus came to, into the world to save sinners whom I, of whom I am chief. He loves the gospel. He loves the church for the sake of the gospel. He loves the lost. And he says, Timothy, don't forget this aim in the midst of war. I remember listening to a chaplain of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the second Iraq war, 2003, addressing these soldiers, OPC soldiers that were involved in that war, saying, God has given you a calling to fight, but don't let that fight turn into bloodlust where you become full of hatred and bitterness and you forget the aim to build and restore. And you become hard and heartless and callous. And that's what Timothy is being warned against. In the war, in the fight, don't lose sight of your end. Don't let yourself get hard and heartless. And he says that in, in, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Important for us as leaders in the church. Not quarrelsome, but kind. Able to teach. Patient, patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There's always that hope and that aim of love. And even to Hymenaeus and Alexander, chapter 1, verse 19, 20, I handed them over to Satan. They had to be put out of the church. But the aim was one of love that they might learn not to blaspheme. We're, we're praying for their repentance and their salvation. It's important for us to keep our aim. As you address, he says in verses 6 and 7, certain persons who have swerved away from these three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And they've wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Just an example of how that might have worked. If you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, there was a real concern for genealogy, especially in the priesthood, that if you could trace back your line and prove that you belong to the priesthood, you could serve as priest in the exile or the community of the returned exiles. But for some of them, no genealogies could be found. And what obsessive Jewish rabbis would do in the centuries to come is start to make up their own genealogies. And then they would have wars about whether you belonged. And all of a sudden, your salvation belonged, had to do with whether you could trace yourself in a genealogy. And that became totally fruitless and Christless. I think sometimes we can even do that. Somebody meets you for the first time 
And rather than ask them about their faith and their relationship with Christ and how things are going in their life, you want to put them in a genealogy and get yourself a bingo. Wait, did you just communicate that faith doesn't matter? And genealogies and speculations and making those, that's really what it is to be in the church? No, that can become anti-gospel. That's what Timothy was dealing with, these speculations and myths and endless genealogies. And it was such a Christless obsession that was turning people away from the sound doctrine. So you got to go after those guys, but don't forget your aim. You want to correct them and restore them and bring them back to the healthy doctrine. Because they're not teaching the law properly. They're not using the Bible properly. And you have to bring them back to that. And that's what we see secondly. Timothy's call is to guard the gospel by teaching these certain persons to use the law properly. These teachers had lost sight of the proper use of the law. They were using it for myths and speculations and endless genealogies and vain, useless discussions, endless debates, silly controversies that had nothing to do with Christ. We're not upbuilding it. They had become bad stewards of the faith. They didn't use the law lawfully, he says. He says in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just and for the lawless and the disobedient. Not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. What does it mean to use the law lawfully? Let me give you four examples of how we can use it unlawfully. You can abuse the law. One, by using it as a way of salvation. By using it for self-righteousness, like righteousness, like Paul did, using it as a checklist. There, I did that, did that, did that, kept all the traditions, now I'm good with God. That's not using it lawfully. Secondly, you can use it as a fodder for speculation like these false teachers did and for endless discussion and debate thirdly you can like the Pharisees use it as a system of protection where they added to the law line upon line and rule upon rule and precept upon precept to make sure that they were safe So suddenly there were all these debates. How many steps can you take on the Sabbath day before it becomes work? (laughs) So they started counting steps. One, two, three, four. And suddenly the work of counting steps wrecked the whole purpose of the... They used the law unlawfully. Wrecked the whole purpose of the Lord's day. Wrecked their rest. You see, they lost it by using the law unlawfully. So you can use it as a system of protection. The law can't protect you, only the gospel can. It can direct you. It doesn't have the power to protect you. Another unlawful use of the law. 
people actually believe? Sometimes as Reformed Christians, we do the same. That it has the power, the law has the power to produce good fruit in you. It doesn't. Only the Spirit has the power to produce good fruit in your life. The law stands before you as your goal of perfection. I want to live like that. That's Jesus on two feet. I want to look like him. But it can't get you there. Only the Spirit can, by the power of the gospel. So these teachers, he says, who desire to teach the law, and they make very confident assertions about it, have these very definite opinions, they're all wrong. They don't understand it at all. They're using it in a way that actually takes you away from the gospel. Doesn't bring you to it. Because they're teachers that have swerved from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You can't trust those guys. But Paul says, the law is really a very good thing if you use it lawfully. And the word good reminds us of what Paul says in Romans 7. The law is righteous, holy, and good. But this word good is even a stronger word good than Romans 7. It means inwardly excellent. But also outwardly beautiful in form and appearance. It's a beautiful thing. If you use it lawfully, if you abuse it, it becomes ugly, despicable, destructive, unhealthy, damning. It makes you a son of hell. We can grow up in the church with such a bad view of the law in unbelief that we make ourselves and try to make others children of hell by the way we use it. No. It's good when we understand this, he says in verse 9. You got to understand this. For right ministry of the law, the law is not laid down for the just. It's not a way to prove that you're, 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 you're good, you're right. It's laid down for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers. For liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's often what we call the first use of the law. The law is given, laid down by God, not to tell the righteous how good they are, but to tell sinners how bad we are. Tell us that we're lawless and disobedient, we're ungodly, we need a Savior who's Jesus Christ to make us right with God, to take our sins and our disobedience and our anti-godness our profanity make them his very own and pay for them set us free by his death on the cross oh the false teachers didn't understand the law they were using it as a measuring stick of how good they were they used it 
as opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. To a false hope of self-righteousness. And and then you notice how Paul runs through the Ten Commandments in his list here. Or at least through the order of them. He, He speaks of the laws for the ungodly and sinners. Referring to our rejection of God and his worship in the first and second commandments. Then for the unholy, that's the third commandment, taking the holy name of God in vain. For the profane, that's the fourth commandment, profaning the Sabbath day. For those who strike or smite or even kill fathers and mothers, that's the fifth commandment. For murderers, that's the sixth commandment. For the sexually immoral and for men who practice homosexuality, that's the seventh commandment. For enslavers, that's the eighth commandment. Literally, it's man-stealing, kidnapping, the worst form of slavery there is like we practiced in the 16th and 17th centuries. Man-stealing. The eighth commandment. Ninth commandment, liars and perjurers shall not bear false witness. And then whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And, And Paul is saying, Because this is what we like to do. If you condone any of these things, hey, whether it was condoning the slave trade in the 17th century or sexual immorality or homosexuality in the 21st century, you're doing two things. You're using the law unlawfully, calling evil good. And you're speaking contrary to sound doctrine. destructive no says Paul in Galatians the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ it is given to crush our self-righteousness crush our pride crush our belief in ourselves to humble us before the Lord and bring us to the cross of Jesus Christ that we might repent of our sins and look for his righteousness and be justified not by the law but through the gospel. That's what it's for and that's what we see thirdly. To guard the gospel of the glory of the blessed God we must teach the gospel properly. The law is meant to take us to the gospel and notice how Paul transitions so smoothly from the law to the sound doctrine, to the gospel in these verses. When he says, the law in verse 9 is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Verse 10, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. The law condemns us as terrible sinners, even as the foremost, the chief, the worst. But it's meant to take us to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And that's how Timothy and all the teachers must teach it. It's not given for us to justify ourselves, but to run to Christ for our justification. And in Jesus, you know what you come face to face with is the love of God. In Christ Jesus, on the cross for your sins, and a complete forgiveness.
And Paul later gives his own story. That's what happened to me. The law was for me a blasphemer, insolent opponent of God. And it, God cornered me with it. He imprisoned me. He took away all my arguments, all my self-justifications, all my, all my self-righteousness and brought me to the cross. And when I trusted in Jesus, I was forgiven. It says, a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And then he says later, and Paul or God used me as an example for you. And if we find ourselves in this list in any spot, we might even be believers and we see these things creeping up into our lives. Any one of these sins against the Ten Commandments. What do you do with that? Fight and argue that it's not a sin? That's going to kill you. That's unsound. That's anti-gospel. Oh, you say, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I'm a sinner. Save me. And he will. And he will. I got to make one more comment about teaching the gospel properly. The gospel is meant to do what in your life? Well, it's meant to corner you in the prison of your sin through the ministry of the law. The gospel uses the law to that end. So you give up on yourself. The law is not for making yourself safe by setting up all kinds of rules and boundaries. There, now I'm good with God. The law is meant to make you run to the gospel for safety. But when you run to Jesus Christ for your salvation, the gospel takes you further. It takes you higher than Jesus. May I say it that way? It takes you higher than the forgiveness of your sins and new life in Christ. That's what he goes on to in verse 11 when he says, this is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Not the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God that has been entrusted to me, says Paul. Jesus came and rescued us from our sins. What for? To take us to God's glory and to bring us in his everlasting blessedness, his infinite excellence, his fullness, and to all the glory of his attributes. That's what it's referring to. The blessedness of God is his endless personal excellence and perfection and beauty, his infinite holiness, his almighty power. 
His impeccable righteousness. His abounding love and faithfulness. His astounding mercy. His incredible patience. Jesus took you out of your sin to bring you into the blessedness of God. The word blessed is actually happy, into the happiness of God. To be filled with all his fullness, his overflowing, joyful fullness. Wow. Sin won't get you there, will it? It gets you to destruction. Why take the pathway of a lie that brings you away from the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, the happy God? Why not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sound doctrine, the healthy doctrine that takes you into the fullness of God to dwell with him forever and already enjoy him now and in eternity Enjoy him in the fullness of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how beautiful is the gospel. Thank you for giving it to us. How ugly is false teaching. Thank you for the call to wage the good war against it. Help us to be faithful in this task and always to keep before us the great aim of the glory of the blessed God and the gospel that takes us to you. Lord, keep that in front of us all the time and bring us into that blessedness of the happiness and the fullness of our God. Protect us, Lord from the ways of the false teachers and from their evil doctrines. Oh Lord, give us wisdom both to teach and to hear and understand and to respond in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.